Hey guys. Hey. Welcome to Half Torah with Eliana and Abigail. But I'm Abigail. And I'm Eliana. And we are back. We took a week hiatus, so um yes. that's always fun. But um, you know, we're jumping around in these special episodes having to do with like those special half torot. And um yeah, so I always do this where I'm about to say what this week's is, and then I'm like, no, no, no. We can't just say what this week's is without introducing the book. And also, Eliana's one that says what this week's is. So I just need to stop talking. <sighs> yes. Um, but you guys know the drill. Uh, I'll just tell you what book we're reading from. It is Mitoch O'el HaHaftorot, from within the tent, the Haftorot, essays on the weekly Haftorot, reading from the rabbis and professors of Yeshiva University, published by... Magid! Wow. I was like, Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Did you forget? Um, which is a division of? Correct. Facts. Whoa. Someone just really closed that door. Maybe we're being too loud. Um, interesting. Okay, anyways, carrying on. Um, so, yes, we know it's... Uh, we know the drill of the book now. I don't know why I keep saying the word drill, but please ignore me. Anyways, um, Eliana and I spent some time catching up. So that we don't have to do it on the episode. So I feel like we could dive right in. Yeah, I think we should. Okay, let's go for it. Okay, you want me to start? Yeah, always. All right, so this week's uh, Dvar Torah is by Professor Adina Levine Rydzinski. Uh, and the title is Haftorah for the First Day of Rosh Hashanah, The Story of Hana and Divine Justice. All right, that okay, sounds cool. fun. All right. Um, the story of Chana is a moving account of the power of prayer and seems to fit exactly where it is placed, at the center of the Rosh Hashanah liturgy. The plot is not a new one, and as it echoes the stories of Sarah, Rivka, and Rachel um, in varying degrees. There's the, um, there's the barren favored wife, a fertile rival, and an adoring husband who proves unsympathetic until the barren wife is ultimately remembered by God and conceives a son. I like that description. Because mm-hmm. that's yeah. Honestly, like yeah. That's... Also, they told us right away, like, what's what the story's about. Like, okay, this is a Shmuel Aleph right here. Thank you. Also, really weird how big of a trope that is. Like, I've noticed it, but, like, all so many of the women in, like, Tanakh especially, like, their whole plot is that they can't have kids until God is like, no, you can now. Yeah, literally. Like, like their, like, plot line. Yeah, like... Okay, who isn't barren? I feel like you can count it on, like, one hand. It's, like, I mean, Kava, like, Noah's like, wife. None of, like, good ones, you know? Like, Leia is pretty fertile, but she's, right. like, but, she's like, not Rachel. But, like, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel are not. Hana is not. Um, there are definitely others that aren't. Like, it's just like, so common. Like, kids, like, aren't part of their story. But, like, mostly if it's, like, gonna be... If they're gonna... If, if their kids are gonna be, like, big members of, like you know, Jewish history, like, the Avod and whatever, like, their mom's gonna be barren. Which is also kind of interesting. It's, like, this person is inherently necessary for, like, the um, propagation of our nation, and thus, like, it's almost like the parents had to go through some, like, preliminary, like, um, I don't know, like, like, they had to be, like, approved almost to, like, mm-hmm. have this child. Um, but, like, we don't see that with Moshe or anything. Um, yeah. So that's interesting. True. I like that. Again, schmote, schmote supremacy. <laughs> mm, gotta disagree, but that's okay. 
I love me some Shmote. Oh my god, guys, Shmote, Prince of Egypt, uh, Pesach era is almost upon us. Oh my god, okay, okay. Tomorrow's Purim. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I need to enjoy Purim first. That means that it's almost Prince of Egypt season. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. You're right. You are right. But okay, but like these partiot that we're up to right now, which is like Trumatitsava, like so boring for me. Like yeah. all the Kohanes like garb and like the Mishkan, like, okay. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And that's in Shmoat, so I don't know. Oh no, Shmoat, Shmoat until Yitro Supremacy. Fine. Fine. <laughs> I can get <laughs> like, I have to Yeah. Brashi, if I had to read both, I'd rather read all of Brashi than all of Shmoat. But if I had to choose a solid like half of each to read i would definitely read half of shimoto <laughs> okay anyway Just in case that scenario ever comes up <laughs> oh it will i don't doubt that <laughs> um the narrative thus closely parallels the torah portion that is read on rosh hashanah when god remembers the baron um sarah to give her a son and as the talmud recounts both sarah and Hannah, as well as rachel were remembered on rosh hashanah Yet the story of Hannah rises above the accounts of the matriarchs in the detail it provides with regards to Hannah's prayer and the accompanying narrative of Ailey's misunderstanding, and it serves as the source of many of the laws of prayer. While Rivka sum- um, summarily asked, If so, why is this me? And she went to seek Hashem. During her struggle to have children, this Haftar recounts the full text of Hannah's prayer both before and after the birth of Shmuel. The Talmud also notes that Hannah is the first person to refer to God as Master of Legions, an epithet that uh, that merited her considerable reward, and which has since become part of our prayer lexicon. Additionally, the very form for prayer is derived from this narrative, that one who prays should direct his or her heart toward God and must enunciate the words rather than simply think of the prayer, but must do so quietly so that the benediction is inaudible to others. However, Hannah's prayer is not a simple supplication or an uh, importuning petition that one would consider is encouraged on Rosh Hashanah. In fact, Talmudic sources have infused Hannah's prayer with a level of temerity and brazenness that changes the tenor of prayer from one entreaty um, to one of a to one of entre- entreaty uh, to one of a challenge to God's divine justice. For instance, the Talmud recounts several objections that Hannah levied levied um against god in which hana challenged the justice of her barrenness the talmud concludes that when this that when the text states that hana that hana prayed al hashem literally against hashem that she had flung her words upward towards heavens without the proper respect Similarly, the Midrash recounts that Hannah was punished for the content of her prayer by adding superfluous words to her prayer. Hannah shortens Shmuel's life to 52 years. With such a, uh, I hate that. I hate when, like, oh, the children get punished for something random that the parents did, but whatever. Um, with such a cen- um, censored context, the selection of Hannah's prayer as the, as the model in the liturgy of Rosh Hashanah, a day devoted to prayer and repentance characterized by the re, um, recantation that prayer gets rid of evil decrees, is extremely perplexing. While Hannah's request was certainly granted, she birthed the son that she sought. The level of criticism surrounding her prayer begs the question as to why the story of Hannah serves as a model for prayer. One particularly interesting challenge that Hannah raises in her prayer is worthy of mention, as it both strengthens this question and may ultimately help provide a solution. In interpreting the double use of the verb see in Hannah's statement, if you will see, literally, if see, you will see. Okay. Um, the suffering of your maidservant. The Talmud explains, 
Amr Khan Alfnea Kadashbrahu, Rabbi uh Rabbi Nushash Ribano Shalom. Got it. Um Imra Mutab the Im Lav Tira Elacha. Um the Astater Bifne Um Alkana Bali the Kevan Dimistatrana Mashkuli Me Sota. Um wow. The I Ataosa Tortacha Plaster Shana Amar Vinakta Vinizra Azara. Sadhana Tashan, master of the universe, if you see, i.e., heed my prayer, fine. If not, you will see by other means. I will seclude myself in front of my husband, Elkana, and become and because I secluded myself, they will have me drink the waters of the Sota. Um, the suspected adulteress adulteress, and you will not make your Torah a fraud, as it states, if the woman be guiltless, then she shall conceive seed. Um, which is kind of ridiculous because Sota that doesn't even make sense to me. Like Sota doesn't work for your husband. You have to be secluded with someone who's not your husband. Yeah. I don't know. I like all of this is just like I don't know. I know it's like not the point and stuff, but this is just like you know the sexism of like the Torah kind of like in that like so many of the like strong women and like then also just like random like nameless women who like did sota and stuff like they're kind of like reduced to like being like the mothers of men who were gonna be like big in. Tanakh? I don't know. Um, I don't know. Um, like she, That's just like she's what using it. I'm getting from it, just as like oh. this is like their stories, kind of, and they're like such, like especially Hannah and you know. I mean, uh, she's using Sarah. it to her advantage, though. Like she's like trying, she's working the system. She's like threatening God with like, I will literally make it that you have to give me a child because those are the rules of Sota. Because I will be innocent, and thus everyone else human will accuse me, but you, God, will have to like subsume to me, like like. I don't know. I guess. I don't know. I also just don't like how that, like, worked. Like, I don't, like, obviously, like, this was a different time, but it's, like, stuff like that doesn't happen. Like, you can't say, like, God, I'm going to put myself in this situation, and then if you're real, like, you're going to pull me out of it. Like, Yeah, I don't know. There's no guarantee that anything's going to happen and that you're not just going to, like, die or, like, be in danger or whatever. Like, I don't know. Things just don't work like that. Yeah. But, you know, that's just how it is. And I don't know if, like, my opinions right now are... I haven't learned in so long. Like, I have to, like, get back my brain. Too much psych and history. Oh, God. Not a, not enough Torah. The audacity of college. I know, it's disgusting. Mm-hmm. Guys, if you can, just go to STEM forever and yeshiva. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll continue. At face value, this passage seems to indicate that Hannah somehow blackmailed God with making the Torah a fraud as part of her plea for a child. Hannah threatened to become a sota by seclusion, uh, but not to actually succumb to the sin of adultery, becoming the innocent sota that the Torah promises shall conceive seed, thereby compelling God, as it were, to grant her a child. For from the epitome of supplication that in lanu al mi le lehishan. En el avinu Individuals have no recourse other than reliance on God. Chana appears to have believed that she had some power to enter into the Sota process and treat it as a form of self-help, through which she would be able to conceive her son by other means if God would not readily accede to her request. In negotiation theory terms, Chana had a batna, B-A-T-N-A, um, an alternative to the negotiated agreement, and therefore was not at the total mercy of God. The difficulties inherent in Hannah's threat are numerous. 
Most fundamentally, God is the same one who has promised the clear so to woman shall conceive seed, and obviously, therefore, he has the ability to revoke that promise in situations where the conception is not deserving. To threaten the omnipotent with inconsistency tears at the boundaries of credibility. God can can easily carve out an exception in the same way he created the rule. In fact, the Baraita itself foresaw Hannah's threat, uh, that all barren women would simply choose to undergo the Sota process, and therefore Rabbi Akiva maintains that the only blessing that would emerge for the innocent Sota is that her conception would improve, her conceptions would improve, and not that she would now be able to conceive if heretofore she was unable. Okay, that's literally what we were saying, basically. Yeah. Us and Rabbi Akiva! According to Rabbi Akiva, then... The double use of the verb see is simply the Torah speaking colloquially, and not that Hannah leveraged any such threat against God. However, according to Rabbi Ishmael, who maintains that the Sota process did result in newfound fertility for the guiltless woman, it is necessary to understand the rationale behind Hannah's threat. Fundamentally, Hannah portrayed the Sota process as a viable option for the barren woman rather than a last resort, which seems contrary to certain Talmudic statements that a man is forbidden to warn his wife and thereby initiate the Sota process, and that the Sota was marched around the temple so that she would confess rather than have to drink the bitter waters, a process that would involve erasing God's name. In fact, while the textual source for the Sota recounted in Bamidbar 5.11-31 appears to apply in two separate cases where the wife has been defiled, but there were no witnesses, the guilt without evidence case, and where the husband believes his wife to be guilty, the uncertain guilt case, the Talmud reads, the Talmud read into the Sota process additional procedural prerequisites and was only concerned with one case, where the wife secluded herself with a man who was not her husband before two witnesses and after a warning. Hannah's supposed threat thus invariably involved the biblical prohibition of Yehud. So how could the righteous Hannah, one of the seven prophetesses, have realistically made such a threat? Perhaps the answer lies in, the, in a better understanding of the Sota process itself. The Sota procedure has traditionally been understood as the only biblical, biblically san- sanctioned ordeal of uh, a form of justice in which the accused is subjected to a lethal natural phenomenon and merits salvation only by divine intervention. The miraculous waters of the Sota thus contained both the power to inflict and to heal, depending on godly judgment. Similar to where the accused was thrown into dangerous waters or passed through fire, the Sota process is an example of an ordeal for the case of epistemological uncertainty where the uncertainty of the wife's defilement is determined by divine intervention through the drinking of these waters. In this way, the Sota represents the divine backstop. Backstop? Did he mean backdrop? I don't know. (laughs) So fundamental to Judaism's um, justice system that in factually indeterminate situations, God will fill the gaps. The divine interstitial, interstitial justice is particularly contrary to the limitations of human justice as represented by the role of Ailey. The Midrash explains that Ailey believed that Hannah was drunk because he misinterpreted the Urim Vatumim, the divine communication via the breastplate, and confused God's message of kosher with drunk. Pause this. The Urim Vatumim um, is in this week's Parsha. Shout out to Titsave because oh my God. that's where all like the Kohen's garb is like enumerated. So stark. Wait, how do you say drunk again? Um, Shechar versus, um, like, um, it, like, I think it was, like, like, Kasher, yeah, Kasher versus, like, Shechar. Like, the letters were mixed up or something. My man needs to get his letters right. Yeah, because, like, if the letters just, like, lit up or something, then, like, he didn't know what order they were in. Oh, it was, like, a word scramble. Maybe. I don't know. That'd be so funny. The Urim Batumim is, like, a word scramble, and all the, like, Kohanim are, like, what do we do? 
I legit can't. It's like, I don't know, some magic sparkly sparkle stuff. Like I, don't I know. love it. I'm into it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Um the Talmud later recounts another mistake of Ailey's that was corrected by Shmuel during which time Ailey sought to decree upon two year upon the two year old Shmuel the death penalty for rendering a law for rendering a law in the presence of his future. What? Two year old death penalty, Ailey. Okay. Um Human justice is both fallible, fallible and unduly exacting, inherently restricted by actions, evidence, and rules, rather than consider, rather than considerate of spirit, intent, and thoughts. In this sense, the SOTA procedure falls under the biblical rubric of ki ipale, um, what to do when factual matters are uncertain. The SOTA process is established, as are other rituals in Judaism, for the case of the faith, judicial uncertainty. The SOTA process is the default mechanism um when tangible evidence is lacking but the crime is not ultimately unpunishable uh god then steps in to fill the gap where the human justice system has failed to render a verdict on even those private matters that took place behind closed doors uh by by referencing the sota process then hannah was not herself threatening to become a suspected adulteress but was simply asking god to step into the role of divine ubiquity and account for those highly personal matters where human justice falls short i have a question do they after a woman does like the whole sota thing and then like if she's found innocent i feel like they need to like pay her or something so she's she's um okay we're in the middle of doing sota right now in one of our gemara Mm -hmm. classes but Ooh, we we haven't got so like we're still in the beginning because we're going like very very slowly, um. But we haven't gotten to like what happens after the process, except for that we know she's like because she's forced to go through the situation. Which first of all, she's not. She can always choose to divorce her husband, um, because they never force her to do this. But because there's like a suffix, maybe she did sleep with this man. Once you slept with someone else, you can't go back to your husband. So that's why she's forced mm-hmm. to divorce. Um, without yeah, but like if you didn't do it, it's in your best interest to just do SOTA. Right. So be- then do SOTA. And if you're innocent, then you are promised to have children. But like, I think the people should also pay her for more for damages. Like the people who um, accused her, aka her yeah. husband? Yeah. So her husband should pay her. I mean, she doesn't yeah. own anything. Everything is her husband's anyways. He needs to add to her dowry or something. <laughs> So then her dad gets money. I don't know. Like, the women don't win. Oh, I like, hate it here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, he needs to give her some jewelry. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. I just, like... I'll tell us all. Thank you. When, when, we, when we let them know, like, put that on the list of things we're complaining to Chazal about. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, perhaps this is the reason that the prayers of Hana is... That the prayer of Hana is accorded such a central place in Rosh Hashanah's service. Because it represents the idea that, like the Sota, the, in, the individual can never escape God, even in the privacy of his or her own home. This is both a message of atonement for those crimes that are unknowable to man, but also of solace. Since although human systems may fail, there is an ultimate recourse in God. I like that. I like this connection. I think that's so beautiful. Yeah, it is. Like, okay. Like, it's a, it, there's safety in that. That, like, yeah. yeah, we're all stupid. Like, everyone could make a mistake, no matter how absolutely positively sure you are. But if you say, okay, there's something, like, beyond all of us that actually knows and, like, has the truth, then, like, we're all safe, even if, like, here it seems bad. Yeah, it's like when you're, like, a little kid and, like, your parent accuses you of something and you're like, well, God knows I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> Literally. This is actually But it's, yeah. like, true. Yeah. 
As Hannah says, um, Shmuel 2.3, For the Lord is a God of thoughts, and to him are deeds counted, thus proclaiming that God looks beyond evidentiary lines in determining reward and punishment. But there is a final way to think of the Sota process, and one that Hannah presumpt- um, presumptively requisitioned in utilizing it as protectionist legislation. The drinking of the Sota waters is intrinsically different than the traditional types of ordeals, such as passing through water or carrying hot iron. In the latter cases, the physical danger is inherent in the activity, and divine judgment supersedes nature, guilty until proven innocent. While in the former, divine judgment renders a nominal glass of water into a legal potion, innocent until proven guilty. Um, which is also um, just like a slight tangent. Hammurabi's code had a very similar sort of thing, where... Um, you had in a uh, a woman accused of adultery she had to drink a certain thing and if she was guilty um or or no maybe i think it was like you relied on the gods to like prove her innocence um because she would drink some like poison or something so if she was guilty obviously she'd die but like if she was innocent then the gods would save her or something um well here it's no 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 this what she's drinking is not gonna hurt her She's literally drinking, like, some whatever muddy, I don't know, water. Yeah, right? and so it's, like, legit, like, God is just doing it. So it's only, like, literally in the case of her actually being, like, it's 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 exactly the opposite. It's, yeah, it's guilty until proven innocent, where, uh, no, 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 it's innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. It felt like you need God to do it, which is, like, totally, like, a different concept, which I find, like, really yeah. interesting. Yeah, I like the Code of Hammurabi thing gives me very, like, Salem witch trials where they would, like, throw a lady in the water and they're like, if she drowns, she's not a witch and if she doesn't drown, she's a witch. Like, she's gonna die anyway. Right. Yeah. The Sota process is therefore not an ideal, uh, an ordeal, but a ritual and not a form of justice in and of itself, but a request for divine intervention through the mundane act of drinking water. In the sense, then, the Sota process is a form of justice not at all concerned with getting the facts right, but rather in ending the conflict. It is the Torah HaKinaot, the law of jealousy, that serves as recourse for a suspected wife as vindication against a jealous husband. It is as if both husband and wife have reached a stalemate and and agree to resolve their differences by a divinely sanctioned flip of the coin. Perhaps it is for this reason that the Sota text contains an intentional ambiguity of her defilement, both in the beginning and in the end. Not because the case is one of factual uncertainty, but because the truth does not matter. The focal point of the procedure is its aftermath, its ability to have solved an otherwise unsolvable dispute, and encourage the continuity of society, con- the continuation of society. It is this view of Sota as a compromise and a step towards marital and societal harmony that Hannah embraced when she beseeched God to grant her a son. It is the school of thought that believes that um, pishara, compromise, is the highest form of justice, that rather than having the law pierce the mountain, there is tzedakah and chesed, charity and kindness inherent in the law. The point of the Sota and Chana's prayer is not a black and white issue of did she or didn't she. Whether the issue at hand is that of committing a crime or meriting of a child under the strict din law. What? Well, then, um, or, okay. Because, oh, I, I feel like this doesn't really follow. Like, because she wasn't actually an adulteress. She was like, I'm just going to get myself into the situation, right? Yeah. So, like, okay. I don't know. Yeah. But okay. Um, rather, it is about God's mercy interwoven with justice, which distinguishes human justice from divine justice, and for which God allows his name to be erased. Because without this aspect of compromise, societal harmony and mercy within the law, there cannot be there can be no divine presence. This is the justice that we all ask for on Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> 
Cool. Um, honestly, I really liked it. I just didn't like how he tied it into, like, the Hoff Torah. But, like, I, no, 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 I don't, I didn't like how he, I liked the whole Sota whatever, and then, like, the whole Hoff Torah part, but, like, I didn't like how he tied them together. That's what I meant. Mm-hmm. But, like, yeah. otherwise, yeah, good. Cool. Agreed. Yeah. Um, okay, I guess we're done, but, like, happy Purim, everyone. Wow. If you're fasting, I hope you have a good fast. Um, If not, I hope you have a fun day. It's actually um, a different day that's in, like, Misachat Tani called uh, uh, Yom Nikanor. But it it was, like, um, it's no longer an established holiday. But, yeah, anyways. And now we fast on it. Okay, cool. Thanks for listening, guys. I hope you had fun. Um, Shabbat Shalom and Parm Sameach. Perhaps I'm